this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by bizbuysell.com, the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. So here's a challenge. I want you to type into Google, business for sale. What comes up? My guess is one of the first top three natural search listings that pop up is going to be bizbuysell.com. They are by long shot the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. They've got something like 47,000 businesses listed for sale. They've also got one of the largest directories of business brokers online. So if you're looking to have some help and support taking your business to market and you want to find a business broker, it's a place, great place to go. They've also put together recently a guide to selling a small business. You know, if you think about what we're all about here at Built to Sell Radio, it's about helping you take your business to market, helping point out some of the big pitfalls, some of the big obstacles to taking your business to market. And this guidebook can be a really good little tips and tricks on what to think about before you go to sell. You can download it by going to bizbuysell.com slash built. That's bizbuysell.com forward slash built. Tom Franceschi is next up. He was the co-owner of a business called Docstar. He built it up to 45 employees before he decided to sell. A couple things to be on the listen for. First of all, listen for the different reaction he got from private equity buyers, financial buyers, and the strategic buyer that you've ultimately sold to. And, and that's a really good indication of the difference between, again, a financial and a strategic acquisition. Uh, Tom goes on to define frictionless acquisitions, so that's a good thing to think uh, to, to listen for as well. He also acquired a business along the way and did so using a con- combination of seller financing and mezzanine debt. So he defines both and talks about how you can use them to acquire a company. And then I also want you to listen for the way the, uh, the acquirer, in his case, secretly evaluated evaluated his business before he let Tom know they were interested in buying the company, a tactic that a lot of buyers use and may even use in your case. So here to tell you the rest of the story is Tom Franceschi. Tom Franceschi, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah. Well, no, I want to hear the story about Docstar. So what kind of business was Docstar? Docstar is primarily a software company. I was going to say, I should uh, say is, uh, is because it's still in business, right? I mean, you're, you're, oh, yeah, you're still very yeah, much a, yeah. a going concern. Oh, yeah. Going strong and thriving. Um, but we have primarily been in the uh, enterprise content management space. Okay. So and imagine really like- what that means. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, imagine I'm like 12 years, years old. I, I don't know what enterprise content management is, so <laughs> explain that one to me. Yeah, people hear about enterprise content management, but that, that's not really what they buy. What they buy is an improvement to a business process. So we're all about driving costs out of business processes, primarily on the financial transaction side and manufacturing side, to, uh, to reduce the administrative costs of doing business. So for example... One of our core solutions is an account payable, accounts payable automation solution. So what we want to do is we want to drive the cost out of back office processes so organizations can invest more dollars in growing revenue rather than on the expense side because most business owners think in terms of investment uh, and expense. So we streamline core processes, AP, sales order automation, that kind of thing. Um, and we allow organizations, if you really think about it in the context of this conversation, um, in addition to selling our business and having gone through that process, our business is about making organizations more profitable um, and more appealing to outside investors at, uh, at higher valuations because, again, we drive costs out of the business. Interesting. So, again, let me, let me imagine. So, let's imagine I'm a, I'm a manufacturing company and I've got this convoluted, kludgy accounts payable process. Like 16 people need to sign off before the check goes out to the, to the vendor. In what way sure. do you streamline that? So uh, a number of different ways, but let's even start before the workflow process. If you've got you know, a number of people in your accounts payable organization, they're typically processing a lot of paper that comes into the business. They're, they're manually key punching that information into accounting system. In a lot of cases, they may be walking it around desk to desk or in and out of mailboxes to approve, or perhaps you've got remote locations and you've got a centralized accounts payable process. And so they're overnighting or sending through internal email packages of documents that have to be approved. Uh, we start right at the beginning of the process. So we want 
documents, if possible, to come into electronic format into the organization. But if not, we're going to take that accounts payable invoice and we're going to convert it to an electronic file. So it all starts with digitization, and that's sort of the premise behind our solution. So we can grab the information electronically off that invoice. If it's a PO-based invoice, we can compare it to information in the accounting system and receiving information in the accounting system. We can populate the transaction in the accounting system if everything's approved. So in situations that are PO-based, we can take that invoice. No one has to touch it. No one has to enter any information and populate the accounting system with accounts payable transaction based on matching it with records that already exist within the organization. I think I got If you. it is non-PO. Yeah? Sorry. Yeah. No, I, th- I think I, I get basically the idea, and I think, I think that makes – that makes sense. I'm surprised that, that the big accounting solutions, QuickBooks and small business, uh, you know, on up in enterprise, why, why wouldn't they have built this technology? Well, what's interesting is that was sort of the strategic rationale for the deal uh, with Epicor, is that more and more organizations are looking for this kind of technology. And believe it or not, most accounting system providers and ERP solution providers don't have a function like this in their product. They may have some rudimentary workflow processes that allow for routing of documents, very basic most of the time. Um, They may have an attach capability where you can actually attach an invoice uh, to a record within the accounting system, but it's typically it typically happens on the back end of the transaction, not true automation on the front end of the transaction. So, a lot of times it's more of an electronic storage cabinet than it is a true workflow in business process transaction solution, which is what we do and where we come into play. Awesome. So, how did you get into DocStar? I mean, because you didn't start the business yourself, did you? I, I didn't. And interesting story. I, I had uh, I had owned a company. Uh, in the technology space around um, systems integration technologies in the mid-90s. I sold that company to a public company in 1996. That company had a had the Dockstar business or was about to launch the Dockstar business. I ran the company for them that I sold them for a couple of years. And uh, after having been very successful with that, they asked me to take over the Dockstar business and run it for them. So I ran this business for a few years before myself and a couple of partners bought it from the company in 2007. How did you value it when you bought it? Well, we knew the business uh, extremely well. And the organization that was selling it was interested in doing a transaction, hopefully with insiders, because that would provide the best continuity for the business. So we sort of looked at it from the standpoint of what were the metrics associated with it at the time. We did a basic EBITDA-based calculation uh, and came up with a value that we were comfortable with and that we thought we could uh, secure financing to to get accomplished. And then we asked them to help us and and step in with some seller financing. So so we got a pretty attractive price on the uh, on the, uh, on the organization with some inside knowledge for the things that we could do to improve it that would require investment, but the, the owners at the time didn't want to make that investment. And they got a frictionless transaction that, uh, that didn't require a lot, of, uh, a lot of outside transaction costs to get accomplished. Got it. So when you think about back in 2007, what was the rough multiple, was it a multiple of revenue you were buying the company for or a multiple of EBITDA? I think people would be curious to know sort of what your, uh, like when you're valuing the business, what were you, again, were you thinking about a multiple of revenue or multiple of EBITDA? Yeah. So, so at that point, if you think about it, it's three individuals buying the organization and then needing to go out and secure some capital. It was all cash flow based transactions. So it was on the low end of the, of the multiple around EBITDA. Got it. So you're buying it for multiple of EBITDA. Now you've been successful already. Uh, I mean, were you able to write the check yourself? Like why did you bring partners in? Yeah, no, we had, well, there was, there was, I, I had two partners, first of all, who I did the transaction with, who I had gotten to know extremely well. And, you know, one of the key themes for building any organization and driving value for your business is having a strong management team. So um, it's important when anyone thinks about growing a business to sell that it can't be based on any one individual. It has to be based on the skills and capabilities of the strong team and their ability to operate independently. So I had two people who uh, I had relationships with who I knew well and I knew were strong business operators who were going to join me as part of the management team. So that was part of the rationale on the front end to have partners. Now, we also went out and raised some mezzanine debt to be able to uh, finance the transaction and also ask the sellers to hold hold a note uh, on the back end behind the mezzanine lenders. And, and the, the whole idea there was just leverage. Um, you know, we 
put a, a certain amount of equity up front as three individuals, uh, and then we finance the transaction. The, the balance of the transaction is debt. We didn't want to over leverage the, uh, the business. I mean, we didn't want to load it up with too much debt because we wanted to be able to comfortably um, service the debt. And of course, we bought in June of 2007. Um, you know, half the world stopped operating in the first half of 2008. So it's good that we didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it sounds like it. I want to go back to partners because I mean, a lot of people listening to this saying, okay, uh, when I start a business, I'm going to, I'm going to just find two partners. I'm going to divide it up. Everybody's going to have 33% and on we go, uh, with the view that you, that, you know, it's all, you know, all for one, one for all. And it's better to have partners to and in your management team. I mean, you could have, I'm assuming, hired the two individuals you felt confident in, maybe given them some phantom equity, but you chose not to. That you, all three of you guys bought into the business, put actually cash into the business. That's, that's, a, that's a different story. Yeah. Well, and again, the, the couple of guys, and by the way, I, I believe in equity participation for the leadership team, the whole organization, if you, if you can accomplish it. But of course, when you're a, a, a smaller business, that can become unwieldy in, in terms of managing overall transactions. But the two guys that I was interested in bringing into the business probably wouldn't have joined if it was only a salary-based opportunity or compensation-based opportunity. Um, they saw the vision of the business. They saw the opportunity in the business. And, uh, and they were interested in being a part of the upside as well. And, and ultimately, when we brought a couple other team members into equity participation as they joined our senior management team, it was important for us to have, uh, to have them have skin in the game as well. Got it. You used a couple of terms earlier, mezzanine debt and seller financing. So let's just explain those for folks. So uh, seller financing, can you, in, in layman's terms, can you explain that to folks? Yeah, seller financing was the, uh, basically the organization that owned the business uh, provided some of the financing for us to buy it. So as part of the purchase price, they took a note back or, uh, for part of the purchase price. And then um, mezzanine financing is typically a little bit more expensive than, uh, than bank financing. They, t they step into situations where uh, the business has good cash flow and demonstrated capability to service the cash flow related to the debt that the company is going to take on. But perhaps the company itself doesn't have the assets to secure the debt the way that a uh, that a bank would require to collateralize the loan. So for folks at, like at home, let's imagine that the purchase price of Docstar was a hundred dollars, just for fun. Um, yep. Now, what proportion of that would you guys have kicked in? What proportion of that would have been the seller kicking in the way of financing, and what proportion would have been mezzanine debt and and or bank yeah, debt? So yeah, so so for us, it was just to just to put the numbers in, in rough proportion, it was about twenty percent, forty percent, forty percent. So uh, we did the transaction, doing putting up about twenty percent of the transaction in equity. Uh, we took on the mezzanine financing for about forty percent, and then the uh, seller held about forty percent of the note. Got it. I got it. And and there was no kind of traditional uh, bank financing. I mean, obviously, mezzanine debt is usually a form of bank financing, but no kind of tier one bank financing the deal. It was the mezzanine debt that got it done, right? Right. So, so think about it from this perspective. Once you do the transaction, you know, you you finance the payment of the of the transaction price using certain debt instruments, but then you have to have working capital to operate your business, uh, and you want to have some working capital in the business, but you want working capital lines available to help drive and support your cash flow needs as you grow the business out. So in addition to uh, the seller, the, uh, the mezzanine debt and the seller-based financing, we had a tier one bank that participated, but that was a working capital, uh, working capital facility that was based on uh, primarily accounts receivable financing. Awesome. So you get this business under your own purview and it's 2007. The world, as you say, went to pieces in 2008. I mean, talk yeah. to us about the next 10 years. I mean, you built it up to successfully sell it, but what did, you know, as you think about that 10 year run, what were the seminal moments, the big sort of kind of big moments as you think about it? Yeah. Well, for, for us, unfortunately, when you, when you buy, when we bought the business, we had a very clear perspective on what we needed to do. Uh, what we wanted to do. And, and one of those was to invest in a new product. So we wanted to take the current um, version of the product and convert it over to a SaaS-based product, um, all browser-based that could be delivered to uh, either in the, in the cloud or on-premise to a customer based on their choice. Because in the work that we were doing, we saw obviously the markets from a valuation standpoint and also customer preference beginning to turn towards SaaS-based um, SaaS software, software as a service. 
Right. But, but we also recognized that with the type of transactions we were doing and documents we were working with, there were going to be organizations that didn't want to have their product, uh, the solution in the cloud. They were going to want to own the IP uh, and have it behind their firewall. So we made a decision that says we're going to give them the best of both worlds. We're going to architect a product that's browser-based and built for cloud, but then we're going to give customers the option for, uh, for how they want to buy it. And that gives us a broad market reach. It also helps with financial stability of the business because cloud revenue is another component of recurring revenue, which is extremely important in terms of valuation. Um, and it gave us uh, the stability because uh, obviously recurring revenue is more stable in customer preference. So it met a couple of needs. Now, we did the transaction with a timeline for what that investment was going to be, and we thought it was going to be a couple of years. The business, frankly, our, if we separate our, our recurring activity from our, our new license activity, in 2008, we took a hit on new license activity. Uh, when you buy the business, you want to invest, you want to grow, you want to have fun. We had to take a step back. We actually had to reduce staff at one point during 2009 based on the downturn that we saw. But myself and my two partners have fairly a fairly good experience running businesses. So we've been through cycles like this before. So we took a step backward before we could accelerate forward. Um, and it was really 2012 uh, before we had completed our investment in the new product and we're ready to bring it out to market. So we did a couple of things. We had been more generalist prior to that. We made a decision to focus on accounts payable automation as we came out, uh, as we came to market in 2013 with our new product. Again, we introduced the product as a SaaS-based solution that could be delivered either way. Uh, we focused our market opportunity on accounts payable automation and then even two families of products within ERP systems because our product, as you mentioned earlier, is very complimentary to, um, to an, uh, an ERP system. So we wanted to be selling integrated with ERP systems. So we picked a couple of families of products that had great mid-market presence, the Microsoft family of products around Dynamics and the Sage family of products. And then we also made a significant transition at the time to go from what we used to call um, sort of a legacy demand generation um, approach where we were trying to find customers who needed us uh, by outbound, by email, by outbound, outbound telemarketing. And we really began to embrace web-based demand generation where customers who were looking at our solution would be able to find us. So a combination of those three or four strategic decisions and our focus for our customers to, you know, back to the beginning, to really allow our customers to drive efficiency. And, and around the time, people were looking for productivity tools because after 2008, 2009, organizations had sort of right-sized. They'd taken a lot of administrative cost out to get down to a, uh, a back office expense burden that was consistent with what uh, their revenues had for a lot of companies shrunk to. Now they were thinking about growing again. Um, and they wanted to be able to grow without, uh, without adding back office uh, investment and expense. So you need productivities to, productivity tools to do that, we were right at the right place. Allow them to streamline operations, be more nimble and adapt in terms of going after new business opportunities and models, scale without significant investment, um, go into new geographies without thinking of having to add back office because it could all could be, all could be consolidate, consolidated. And then lastly, give their customers a great experience, which is one of the things that we were always about, we, we've been about. So. Uh, we hit 2013, and from 2013 until we sold the company, we saw uh, consistent revenue growth between 25 and 30 percent a year, with a strong emphasis on um, SaaS business or so recurring revenue. In addition to our maintenance streams, our SaaS recurring revenue was growing at an aggressive clip. That's fantastic. I want to go back to 2009, where you had yeah. to actually reduce yeah. staff. Um, yeah. And even go back further than that, when you did the deal to acquire the company, you mentioned... 20% of the equity and 40% through mezzanine debt and the other 40% through through um, seller financing. Did you and your partners have to personally guarantee any of that debt? Yeah. Yeah. We uh, we had a, a limited personal guarantee on the mezzanine financing. And what does that mean, limited personal guarantee? So they couldn't take your home, but they could take everything else? It was limited to a dollar amount. I so see. we each we they they put in X amount of dollars. We each personally guaranteed up to Y amount of dollars on an individual level um, that we were comfortable with. And was that a one and for one? No, it wasn't one for one. It was um, it was about thirty five forty percent of what we borrowed. Got it. Got it. So your personal what they wanted what they what they wanted to do was there. I think as we negotiated that part of tra the transaction, they wanted to make sure that if we made a decision to not pay them, 
it would be painful for us personally. Um, and, and we wanted to make sure that if, if we made that decision not to pay them, it would be painful enough for them, but it wouldn't kill us. So we, we sort of put a fence around it. That's interesting. I've never heard that before, but it's a great, uh, that's a great way to think about it for sure. So in 2009, when you're laying off staff, I mean, did you, did you worry about that personal guarantee? Like what impact did having that personal guarantee have on the way you thought about the business in the, in the worst possible times? Yeah, uh, I, I have to tell you, I, I can't remember ever thinking about the personal guarantee when we were going through that process, because we were we were never at risk of losing the business or not being able to meet debt payments. We had enough recurring revenue uh, in the business so that we could stabilize it. We just had to deal with the with the uh, fluctuation in in uh, NLR and how much we were investing at the time that net license revenue, new license revenue, excuse me and how much we were investing in the t- at the time in building out our new solution. So, you know, we had a few dials that we could move in either direction to either accelerate or decelerate our investments and, um, and with our team members. So we were confident that we could make those decisions. And, of course, we made some sacrifices personally. Um, you know, you can't, you can't be letting people go in your organization because there's a commitment there. That's a, always a very difficult thing for us to do along the way. Um, but we made, we were the first ones to make compensation sacrifices before we asked other people to do that. So, uh, you know, we had that kind of impact, but we, I don't think we were ever in serious, uh, doubt that we were going to lose the business. And I can't remember, you know, ever going to bed kind of wondering whether, uh, whether I was going to have to, uh, take care of that personal guarantee or not. Got it. So and like I said, we're, we're not, you know, this wasn't our first sort of, uh, foray running businesses. The three of us had all been through it before. So we kind of had a good understanding of what we need to do, which was, by the way, be very decisive, right? Make hard decisions, make them quick, keep the team informed as to what you're doing and offer a lot of transparency as to why you're doing it and then move on. Got it. Got it. So let's jump ahead to 2016, 17. I mean, the thing is growing. Your 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 recurring revenue is, is skyrocketing. Um, what was the trigger that made you want I'm not wanna- quite sure it was... John, I'm not sure it was skyrocketing, but it was growing nicely. Uh, okay, I, I I wrote down 25 to 30 percent growth overall, but your recurring revenue was growing at a, at a bigger clip than that. It was. Yeah, I don't know. I guess a subjective <laughs> definition of skyrocketing <laughs> sounds pretty good to me. Um, talk to me about the ac- the acquisition. What was what what triggered first of all the the entire uh, thing in the first place? Yeah, so let me give you a little background and perspective. So one of my partners. Um, one of my partners is the same age as I am, uh, and another partner is a little bit older than, than we are. And so, that is how old, uh, if my, you don't mind me asking? Excuse me? And that is how old? How old are you, if you, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so I'm 53, and uh, my one partner, Greg, is a few years old, was a few years older. So we had been talking for a while about two things. One is um, we had gotten sort of the model down as we came out of 2013 so that one of the other things that we wanted to do was we wanted to do theoretically we wanted to do some acquisitions to help accelerate growth. So our plan all along had been 20% organic, uh, supplemented with very strategic acquisitions. Uh, we did our first acquisition in 2014, which was a small deal that we were able to uh, self-finance between um, our own internal internally generated cash flow in a note that the seller was willing to hold in terms of buying that business. So um, that was sort of a taste of what we wanted to accomplish going forward at a bigger scale. And my partner, Greg, you know, we were starting to talk about how do we get an exit strategy for Greg as he starts to think about phasing out of the business over time. So we went out and I started to do 2014, 2015. I started to talk to a lot of private equity funds about potentially making an investment in the business. Um, And again, we wanted to do three things. We had a pretty good, we had started to develop a pretty good um, return model for if we invested X in sales and marketing, we could expect Y out at the back end of that engine based on a lot of the SEO work we did in in, uh, digital demand generation. Um, So we wanted to invest a little bit there. We wanted to have a partner that was willing to step up and help us do um, acquisitions if we found the right opportunities. And we wanted to to, uh, to begin to think about an exit strategy for our partner who was thinking about <clears throat> exiting the business and retiring. So all those things led me to the private equity market. So we had a mindset in place for going out and raising capital or doing some kind of uh, some kind of transaction. Frankly, we weren't excited. We went out. We had a we had a couple of term sheets from uh, from private equity funds. They were primarily financially based transactions, which I know your your audience will probably understand the difference between a financial buyer and a strategic buyer. Define which it. Which meant which. 
Yeah, so a financial buyer is really based on cash flow. So it's a it's an EBITDA based calculation. Um, <clears throat> they're thinking about the investment they make, how they can grow it, and what the return on those initial dollars are going to be. So it's really I think of it, we think of it as uh, a financially based sort of cash flow model that they're that they're working with. Um, a strategic investor has a different eye. Uh, a strategic investor has a uh, a hold in their portfolio, perhaps that they want to fill a product or fit a product in to fill for their customer base to either um, allow them to drive more uh, mind share and wallet share out of their existing customer base to deal with a competitive situation um, or, or just to um, you know, improve the overall profile of the organization in breadth of technology that's, uh, that's offered. And the multiples that are paid and the way they look at valuation are, are completely different because a strategic investor um, really thinks more about what the, what the, uh, what the product or the business will mean to their portfolio, not necessarily just what the cash flow is going to be generated from the assets that they're actually acquiring specific to what existed uh, so the, existed before. And so the PE guys that you spoke with, what kind of multiples of EBITDA were they offering? Ballpark. Yeah, they were in the, they were in the four to six, seven percent, four, four to six, seven times range. And again, a, a lot of it, there was a lot of variability there, right? Because a lot of it depended on how much maintenance revenue you had. They put a different multiple perhaps on your SaaS revenue. They put a different multiple on your, your net license revenue and they, new license revenue. And they put a different multiple on your professional services revenue. Um, and so they, they had a, a little bit more complicated formula for how to come to things. But that was sort of the way that it all, that, that's the way that it looked to me as I was talking to different people and thinking through it at the time. Got it. So they're they're offering sort of four to six, and and sort of give me a sense at this time how big a company are you guys in terms of what revenue or number of employees, or just give me a sense are we uh, of how big Dockstar was at the time? Yeah, when we when we did the when we did the deal, we were about forty five employees. So as a software company, there's some pretty standard metrics around um, you know revenue per employee to be to be profitable. So you get a good idea from that perspective. That's helpful for sure. And so you kind of yawn at the PE offers, thinking that's not going to get anybody excited. What what was next? Well, we, we frankly we, we were just moving down that path, trying to find the right fund. Uh, and then in January 2016, we got a call from uh, from Epicor, from a, a, a biz dev person at Epicor, who came to us first as a master as a customer, wanted to understand the technology and what we could do for their organization. So they, they took a look at our technology from a customer's perspective. Um, they were looking, they were in a relationship with an accounts payable automation provider that they had been in for a number of years, but that provider wasn't going in a direction that they wanted to go. And primarily, <clears throat> Epicor has a huge emphasis on driving to the cloud putting a lot of energy, a lot of effort into moving customers and products to the cloud, uh, that that relationship wasn't moving in that direction, and they wanted a product that was built for cloud um, and ready to and ready to go. So they they called us up, and we um, you know they after they went through the evaluation of and I don't mean a deep evaluation of the technology, I just mean from a customer perspective, evaluation of the technology. Um, they got in touch with me. Uh, they asked if we if we had an interest, and at the time I told them you know we're not really interested in selling the business, but of course. Um, you know, we're willing to have a conversation. And all along, we thought that the the most sensical sensible exit strategy for us, if we did if we did a sale, would be to uh, an ERP provider because it's a very strategic transaction for them to add the add the technology, and that they could take our solution and make the business worth a lot more than the business would be with in just a, a normal sort of PE based transaction. Got it. So the biz dev guy came to you dressed up as a customer, uh, filled out the yes, I want more information, and one of your sales reps, I guess, contacted them and 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 had the preliminary sort of demo of the of the product. Is that how it went down? Yeah, that's correct. And then they uh, once they um, once they uh, went through the preliminary demo, they were and by the way, they were very discreet. Uh, they reached out to uh, our VP of sales was involved in the in the conversations at the time. So they reached out to him independently and asked him to, uh, to have me give them a call. Got it. Got it. And, and at what point did you realize that, that Epicor was, was evaluating you for less for a sale and more for an acquisition? Uh, you mean what, at what point in time? Yeah. At what point in or, the process did you go, Oh, these guys aren't looking to become a customer. They're looking to actually buy our business. Well, one thing that you learn about, <clears throat> at least I learned about their organization, is uh, once they had gone through the initial process and developed interest, uh, they were very clear about their intentions. So as soon as they contacted me, 
they were uh, they were interested in having a serious conversation about whether we'd be serious about doing a transaction with them. So they didn't continue to um, to act like they wanted to be technology uh, product buyers. Um, they said they were interested in doing a transaction, and they told me um, exactly what their interest was in terms of it. That it wasn't going to be an investment. It wasn't a partnership they were looking for. Uh, they had made a, a decision to own the IP. Got it. So at what point, so what happens next? Where, where do you go from there? Do they present you with a, a letter of intent? Did you have some management meetings? Like, where does it go then? Yeah. So, so I spent probably uh, 15, I mean, they moved very quickly. I spent probably 15 days with them. I can remember the first conversation about value because I was, uh, I was away for the weekend with my, uh, with my wife for, uh, for Valentine's day for February, 2016. So it was less than a month where we had exchanged some basic information around the business and they asked them for some additional information. I supplied it, and they came back with a uh, with a pretty tight letter of intent, uh, pretty quickly, um, with the terms and conditions that they were willing to do the transaction at. And had they had you guys talked offline or talked at all about valuation up until that, or was the first time you saw their valuation uh, interpretation that letter of intent? It was, uh, for all intents and purposes, the conversations that we had had prior to that. Um, were were really just conversations because I like I said I've been through this a couple of times before with the PE guys and until you see numbers on the paper you don't really have any feel for what they're going to come back with has been my experience. And what was your um, reaction when you saw the letter of intent from Evercore? Uh, you know what? Being very honest with you, we thought it was it was fair, but it wasn't what we were willing to sell the business for. Um, and so our evaluation as three owners was, <clears throat> you know, the business is at a point today where it's in really good shape. It's growing the way we'd like it to be growing. Um, we're not in a rush. We don't have a financial need to sell the business. Uh, we don't have a burning desire to get out of the business in any way. As a matter of fact, we like the business a lot. Uh, so we looked at it really with three priorities in mind, and, and all three priorities were important to us. One was uh, it had to do it had to be a financial transaction worth doing for us individually. It had to be a financial transaction that gave our employees and team members an opportunity to, or a transaction that gave our employees and team members an opportunity to potentially grow their careers in an organization. We didn't want to do a transaction where half our people were gone, you know, two or three months later. We wanted a real ramp for the people who were, uh, who were committed to working with us and help us build the business. And then three, we're a channel-based organization, so we wanted to make sure that our channel partners had an opportunity to continue with the product and uh, in business as well, because we had some channel partners who had built businesses around our product. So we wanted to, we thought about it in the context of all three. How did you think about it personally, whether it was a deal worth doing for you personally? Well, you know, we, we, we had, I had personally done a couple of transactions before, right? So, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of, of wealth built kind of thing. Uh, my partners uh, were both in very good personal financial situations. So neither of us had a need to do the transaction from that standpoint. So we just decided that we, we looked at it and said, okay, if, if we've got a strategic investor potentially looking at the business, if we had to do, if we did a PE deal, if we did a straight financial deal, what would that look like? And then what does the strategic deal look like? And then, how does how long will it take us to get to that same value on a strategic deal? Because there's only so there's only so many strategic buyers out there. How would it take us to get from point A to point B if we don't do this transaction? What are the risks associated with it? Remember, we had been through the downturn in 2008 before, and we saw that eventually we're in a good economy right now, but it's not going to last forever. So that factored in, and then we just said, okay, so let's go individually. You know, Greg, Tom, Jeff what would be a meaningful number for you in terms of lifestyle and, uh, and, um, and, you know, future plans and wealth and everything. So we sort of all came up over a couple of drinks. We came up with a number that we said, you know, we each got to get this much for this transaction to be worth doing after tax. And we came to that number. Um, we went back to Epicor and said, Hey guys, this is what we're thinking. Uh, the, 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 the numbers might not get you there. We perfectly understand and admit that. But this is what it's going to take to get us to uh, to part with the business. Love it. I'd love to be a fly on the wall on those drinks with you and and Tom and Jeff to to uh, or uh, Greg and Jeff to uh, uh, hear that machinations after after a couple of drinks as to what it made sense. I mean, <laughs> and, and you know what? The other, the other thing is they're they're both really smart guys, and so uh, when you when you talk about negotiating the transaction. 
you know, those conversations were 10% of the conversations was about the dollar value and 90% of the conversation is, okay, how do we position to, to get what we want out of this and how do we go back and how do we do this and how do we do that as we thought about negotiating the deal and, and everything associated with it. It's a lot of fun. It was a, it was a, it was a somewhat stressful time. It was a lot of work, uh, but I got to tell you, it was a lot of fun. It really was. Now, Greg was older. Yeah. Was his number different than yours in any way? Was his willingness to sell, for example, heightened by his closeness to retirement? Um, no, no. You know, I, I don't think it was. I, I can't say that for certain, right? Because, you know, who really knows? But um, I, I don't think Greg was not going to accept a number that was uncomfortable for him or for us because of, because of the difference in age that we had. And he's a young spirit at heart good technology mind, loves the business, likes being involved. Uh, frankly, when you start talking about having partners, uh, this was a three-person partnership that worked pretty well. So we had a lot of fun together, too. It's, it, it, was, it was fun operating the business, even in, even in times when it was challenging. Got it. So you so, figure out what, what would make sense for you personally. You go back to Epicor. Now, how did you make that case? Did you just say, look, I, I don't have to justify it to you guys. This is the number, guys. Uh, or did you go through the whole process of justifying your number? Yeah, so so along the way, of course, we had some help from some outside advisors, and uh, and and one of the guys that was helping me. So we had a deal guy, we had a deal attorney, we had a deal guy who was doing some of the interfacing with Epicor on the negotiation, both him and I together. And then I had a guy sort of behind the scenes who I've known for a while, who's been somewhat of a coach to me over time, who did a lot of M and A work first at GE and then in other companies outside of GE in the software industry. So him and I did, you know, a lot of work just to say, okay, so here's the number we got to justify. How do we pull this thing apart and put it together in a way that can make sense to them and they can sell to their, uh, because Depacor is a, a owned by a PE fund as well. Uh, and so they've got to justify the purchase price at some level within their organization. So we went back with a well thought out uh, plan um, and, uh, and calculation to help support the, uh, the dollars that we were looking for. What was in the plan? It primarily looked at the um, looked at the different revenue streams and the different buckets, and looked at the industry to see what someone might pay for those things. In some cases, in uh, in rational, in other cases, in a little more than rational situations. But you know, we we took uh, we we didn't look at EBITDA because we weren't interested in doing an EBITDA transaction, and we were honest with them. We were not running the business. You can't you can't you know growth right and margin are inversely correlated in a lot of cases. So if you're running a 25, 30% growth business, you're not running the business to maximize EBITDA. And so we were very clear to them. We're investing in, trying, in growing the business, and it's not an EBITDA-based calcu calculation that we're going to be comfortable with. So we went and looked at the revenue components and assigned multiples based on what we thought was somewhat reasonable. So you're looking at industry benchmarks for SaaS companies. Yeah, and, and as you know, uh, there's a lot of variability there. A lot of variability there. You can you can find a number to justify just about anything you want to say. So, what did you think on a multiple of top line revenue the business is worth? We we thought it was north of two. North of two times revenue. Yeah. Got it. And and that's what you to tick your first box of being willing to do it personally. That's what you needed to to see it uh, to get to 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 do the deal. It worked out. It worked out when you when you looked at that when you looked at the multiple we came up with, and then you overlaid that against what the three of us decided we each needed to take out of the transaction. It sort of worked. Got it. And so, what was Epicor's original offer as a multiple of revenue? Less than two. <laughs> More than one. <laughs> we'll just leave it at less than two. Okay. No worries. But you guys wanted two plus, and. One thing you did was went and looked at benchmarks of other industries. What else did you do? And the reason I'm asking this question is I can see a lot of business owners listening to this saying, okay, I want to maximize value. I know part of this is optics. Part of this is the way I position the business and present the business to, to a strategic acquirer. So what was it that you did to present back to Epicor the opportunity beyond just the, the third-party benchmarks that you were able to come up with, but what they could do with the business? Like, What did that look like? 
Well, yeah, keep in, keep in mind, this was not just a financial tra- I mean, Epicor is a very large organization with a lot of very talented people. As a matter of fact, one of the most appealing things about doing the transaction with Epicor was the fact that we were going to get to work for them and continue to grow this as part of an organization inside their business. You know, I come back to the employees in the channel and us as individuals. Um, we're growing an enterprise content management platform within Epicor and having a great time doing it right now. It's a lot of fun. They've got a big customer base. Uh, this technology fits well within that customer base. So the rationale from that standpoint was clear. And we and I, we were passionate about wanting to be part of that uh, as they grew it out. So that part of it made sense for us as individuals as well. And that not only were we going to get a chance to do it on a larger stage, right? And it's been great, you know, because the, frankly, the, the response to our technology within Epicor has been fantastic. The people are great. They've got a lot, a lot of really, te- a lot of uh, customers that are passionate about using their technology to improve their operations. And we step right into that intersection in a perfect way we fit. Not only U.S.-based where most of where our, all of our business was, but now Epicor is a global organization. So we've rolled our product out um, across the UA, UK, EMEA, uh, uh, Asia, um, Africa. So we're going, we're taking the product out globally as well. So there's a just a great strategic fit from that standpoint. And it was very important to us along the way. But back to your question, um, Epicor did extensive due diligence on the technology. I spent a lot of time with our technology organization, and quite frankly, I'm very proud, and we're very proud of the way we came out of it because we built a really good product with a really good architecture um, that works well for our customers and meets that market need. They spent time looking at our our, our talent and our sales organization, our talent on our support teams and our services teams. Uh, they spent time looking at our customer base. So, you know, they had done a lot of work to make sure that we were the right strategic fit for them and the right product for them to be buying based on everything we built. And frankly, I think they liked our culture. I think they loved the fact that we were such a customer-focused culture and organization with really good team members committed to making the business successful. We wanted a long-term opportunity with the uh, with the organization. So uh, there was a, I would almost say the selling from that perspective was sort of jointly developed. You know, we talked all the time about what this could mean with an Epicor and what we were doing and how it translated. And they got as excited as we were as they looked, uh, continued to look under the hood. Um, so uh, I think there was a lot of joint selling from that standpoint, to be honest with you. Hmm. How was the deal structured vis-a-vis proportion and an earnout versus sort of cash up front versus a note? Like, how did you actually structure the deal? Yeah, I, I got to be careful here, uh, obviously, because of the Epicor thing. But um, we, I, I think we've got, I think we got very fair splits. And if you go back to before, what our um, <clears throat> our goal was to make sure that uh, we achieved a certain amount of of, uh, of after tax check associated with the transaction. And so we pretty much made sure that. Um, that that we were going to get that amount, regardless of what the earnout turned out to be, or or how the whole escrow thing went down. Got it, got it. That's that's helpful. So you got that uh, that not covered, so to speak, and so there's upside if if you're able to uh, to make it happen. Um, yeah. In the next. And, and and by the way, and they gave us very achieve. I mean, a very fair organization. I'll tell you something about Epicor. Very fair organization. Uh, they did everything they said they were going to do. The transaction turned out very close to what we thought it would when we sort of went into it and what they told us it would be. So it was really, it was a really, you know, it, I won't say it was an easy negotiation and I won't say there were tense moments in the negotiation. There certainly were, but it was a very fair negotiation, very open and honest negotiation. What made it tense? Well, just the, just the, so, sometimes I think what makes it tense, and this is, this is maybe an instructive point, you know, you get into these things and sometimes you negotiate against yourself, Right. You have you're in the middle of the transaction and you have a, a blip in a deal. You have a large customer that uh, decides that they don't they want to change the way they're doing business with you, or uh, you know you have this happen, or or a key employee um, indicates that perhaps you know they're thinking about other options, that kind of thing. And you you go home and you you say to yourself, wow, could this could this impact the transaction? Is you know, and the three of us would sit down and talk about it. How do you think they'll respond to this? So, frankly, some of those tense points. We're just um, uh, we're just us sort of thinking about how you might have to negotiate. I call it negotiating against yourself because the other side isn't engaged. It's just all in your mind. So you had some tense moments like that, right? I think that's part of anything like this when you're when you're trying to do a deal. But also, 
also, um, we had been um, we had been counseled right by outside advisors that you know there's going to be a point in this uh, negotiation where they uh, where they try to negotiate some of the price down. So during that portion, which I think is a natural part of the negotiation, and this is after sort of the letter of intent gets signed and you go through due diligence and, you know, a couple of words get exposed here or there that maybe weren't apparent before. Um, then they come back to you and want to maybe make a, a modification or a change to the deal. And, and I think you've got to be comfortable with some, uh, with some confrontation and some tenseness associated with that when it occurs. The key is to be key is to do it professionally because you've got to remember the old goal. The, the ultimate goal for us was to, was to uh, be a thriving part of the organization going forward. Yeah, we call you know it's obviously called retrading, but we've talked about we've had a whole episodes talking about that that retrading concept of of at the last minute things getting you know uh, renegotiated sometimes for valid reasons, other times because they know it's a negotiation tactic. So, yeah, and Epicor went through an ownership change during uh, while we were negotiating the deal, so we had that disruption thrown in as well. They were owned by uh, Apex um, in in uh, early 2017, and then KKR bought Epicor in uh, September. So uh, that changed the, changed the tenor of the conversations and everything a little bit as we, uh, as we waited for them to complete that acquisition or I, the, the sale of the company. I bet. I'd love to ask you a personal question um, just personally about, about the transaction. So you guys all had a couple of drinks and decided that what it would to be meaningful to you uh, financially, you had to get X amount of dollars, you know, after, after tax. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and let me be let me be clear. There was the couple of drinks happened after there was a lot of paper, a lot of you know, uh, spreadsheets built and things like that to try to figure out what it would be. But I didn't mean um, to. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest it. It, it was, wasn't. It wasn't. I don't want to imply it was. It was quite that casual. <laughs> no. Okay. But in any event, uh, you're making that decision. You don't have to sell. Yeah. Admittedly, to your you know you you've already built some wealth outside of the business. You don't have to sell. The business is going well. For you to make. Yeah the move, there's a number that has to, to be hit. And I'd be curious because I think a lot of our listeners are, are sitting there saying the same thing. Like, what is a number that would have a material impact for me? And, and, and for some, I think it's probably because they want to go buy something. Maybe they want to pay off their house. Maybe they want to uh, take a trip around the world and take five years off, or maybe they never want to have to work again. I mean, whatever you know, whatever justification uh, they've come up with. And I'd be curious in your case, what was it for you that that made it material? Was it this idea of wanting to buy something or something else? And then I'd I'd, I'd love to ask a sort of follow up question, but first, sort of, how did you answer that for yourself? Well, sort of. I, I think there's some fundamental things, right, that you think about. I, I'm not I'm not a materialistic person, personally, in in, in in the true sense of the word. So, I don't have a lot of. Uh, I, I've, got a, I've got a nice home. I've got a nice vacation property that um, uh, that's appealing to my wife and I. Uh, and, and you know, my I think my partners thought about it all the same way. Um, you want to put yourself in a position. I think, right, for me, it's you want to put yourself in a position where yourself and your spouse. Um, can live a very, very comfortable lifestyle, um, can do things that perhaps uh, you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise uh, in terms of the way in the lifestyle you live and the way you live your life. Uh, you think about children, you think about grandchildren, you think about educations that will ultimately have to be paid for and different things like that and financial stability and wealth for the family. Um, and so that's sort of how I came to it. And I, and I can tell you just by having known my partners as long as I've known them, um, I think they felt the same way and thought about it the same way. Uh, none of the three of us went and wrote some huge check to buy some, you know, extravagant purchase that we wouldn't have otherwise, uh, that we wouldn't have otherwise bought. Got it. And my follow-up question was now that the transaction has happened, the check has cleared the bank and, and, and you've, you're actually now have enjoyed that sort of liquidity, if you will, event. How has the money changed the way you think day to day about your life, the decisions you're making, the educations, your funds, the way you think about your grandkids' legacy and so forth? Like now that it's done, how did your thinking at the time measure up to the reality today? Yeah, it's a great, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Frankly, it hasn't changed all that much, right? It just, I think, gives you you know, there's there's the old there's the old saying that 
um, you always want to be able to just, if you decide one day that you don't want to do it anymore, uh, if it's no longer fun, that you can pretty much disconnect and go do something different or whatever else it is you want to do. So, um, you know, to the extent that we weren't there before, uh, this certainly puts you in a position where, uh, you know, you don't have to do things you don't want to do anymore. Um, and I've been lucky because I've stayed with Epicor and I'm enjoying thoroughly what I'm doing with the organization. Like I said before, we're doing great things for customers. We're going to continue to do that. We've got a great market opportunity. We've got great team members, and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And I, and I want to continue to do it, right? Uh, but what the money does, so to speak, is it just allows you to, to one, of the, one of the benefits is it allows you to be in a position where if you don't want to do it anymore, you don't have to. Uh, and you don't have to worry about the adverse ramifications financially of making that decision. And how do you stay hungry under those conditions? Well, uh, if you know me, um, you know that, that it's not all financially driven. Uh, most people who I think do the things that we do are very competitive people by nature. I certainly am. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of intellectual curiosity that keeps me driven on a day-to-day basis. I love the idea of trying to do something in an organization as large as Epicor and see how that works out for me. Um, I love working with the people that I work with on a day-to-day basis. So, uh, you know, at some level, the money um, is important, but it's not what drives you to do what you do every day. You have to like what you do. You have to be passionate about what you do. Um, and so th- this affords me that. And, and and I just, you know, I want more, not just more money, more op- more opportunity, more experience, more challenges. Um, that's one of the things that drives me. Well said. Where can people get in touch with you, Tom? What's the best place you want our listeners to kind of go do something or go visit a website or connect with you on LinkedIn? Like, what's the best way for people to follow up if they're keen? Yeah, they can they can uh, they can find me at LinkedIn. I'll also my my email address is out there and easy to find. It's Tom at epicor.com. Fantastic, Tom. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.